Uh, the temperature is pretty good. We're on fairly comfortable seats. And we get to visit the Holy Land without even leaving home. And we've been doing it uh, for the purpose of deriving some practical life lessons from each of the spots, uh, which we talk about each week. Life lessons from the Holy Land. And tonight, I'd like for us to visit a spot which is quite striking if you've ever been there or maybe even seen the movie. It's called Masada. And Masada is an extraordinary natural rock outcropping looming large in the midst of the Judean desert, which is in the southern part of Israel, right near the Dead Sea. It's quite arid. There's this desert, and then there's this magnificent high-rise rock outcropping. It's capped by a plateau which is fairly substantial and which we'll talk about a little more in just a few moments. Uh, let me tell you some history related to this place called Masada. You know that the Holy Land was occupied for a long time by Rome. Uh, this is what happens when you disobey God. The Jewish people, my people, the covenant people did just that. And then you become subject to ravenous wolves, you know, when you depart from the good shepherd. So here comes Rome. And they occupied the land for quite some time. Well, finally, the Jewish people decided they had enough. And so they formed an uprising against the mighty Holy Roman Empire. And it began in a place called Caesarea, which we had, again, in our comfortable environment, visited some weeks ago. It's on the Mediterranean. And it began in 66 AD and lasted until 73 AD. In fact, it was called the Great Revolt. Well, this didn't sit well with Rome, as you might imagine. And so there was a very kindly and gentle, fairly gracious emperor on the throne of Rome at the time. You know him, I'm sure. Nero was his name. A little nuts in the head, shall we say. So he appointed a man named Vespasian to be his military general in the Holy Land and to command the mighty 10th Roman Legion so much as to quell uh, this uprising, you see. And so Vespasian decided to do this very thing. But Nero began to lose popularity and support in Rome. It couldn't handle the rejection message, apparently, and so he took his own life. Well, someone had to fill the throne, and so there were a few others before Vespasian, the general himself, got on a ship, went back to Rome, and became the emperor to fill the empty seat. Well, Vespasian was absent from the Holy Land, and so someone needed to command the 10th Roman Legion, you see, because these Jews were uh, uh, revolting. And so his son, a guy named Titus, was appointed. And so Titus took over the reins of the 10th Roman Legion. And you probably know him to be the one who in A.D. 70 laid siege to the holy city, Jerusalem. He burnt it really to the ground, slaughtered almost a million of its residents, and destroyed the temple. It hasn't existed down to this very day, A.D. 70, he did that. Well, then Titus was called back to Rome. 
and a new military government a governor was appointed in his place so as to finish off whatever vestiges of the rebellion still remained in the Holy Land. And so this new person commanded the 10th Legion. Now he became ill and could not continue his duties, and so he was replaced by another military governor named Lucius Flavius Silva. He's significant. Flavius Silva. He was the one who took over the reins of the 10th Roman Legion in order to go against the very last center of opposition to Rome. And it was at this very place under our consideration tonight, Masada. So Flavius Silva commands the 10th Roman Legion to lay siege to Masada because on the top of Masada, on this plateau, there were 967 Jews, men, women, and children. You see what they did when Titus was laying siege to Jerusalem was to vacate in a hurry. And they went south again in the Judean desert, south of Jerusalem, and they made their way up to the plateau of this rock outcropping, Masada, and there they continued their resistance to Rome. Well, as you might imagine, this didn't go over too big with the Roman Empire. I mean, who do these Jews think they are anyway? God's chosen people? Hmm, now that's an idea. Well, anyway, uh, Flavius Silva uh, decided he would order them to surrender. And they said, no. They, in so many words, said, hang it on your beak. Well, this wasn't good for Flavius Silva. And so he decided to have a campaign to lay siege to Masada. And it lasted over a few years, you see, because as powerful as was the Roman Empire, Masada was not an easy place to take. You see, on its eastern edge, it was uh, 1,300 feet high. And on its western side, 300 feet high. And so there were many attempts made to um, knock down its walls. On the top of Masada was a wall, man-made, that extended 4,300 feet and was, in parts, 12 feet thick. And it contained many high towers or citadels or, or a stronghold. So it wasn't so easy to take. And so uh, Flavius Silva then came up with the idea, since his previous attempts were failing, to build a rampart on the lower western side, a huge ramp made out of compacted earth and stones. And after several months, he and the 10th Roman Legion gained access to the top, where, with a battering ramp, they knocked their way through the walls and onto the plateau it was on April 16th in the year AD 73. He had over 15,000 men under his command. He had the 10th Roman Legion, but he also had thousands of Jewish prisoners, you see. So he finally succeeded in making his way up to Masada. But there, much to his surprise, he found nobody left alive. 900 plus bodies, but nobody alive. 
They apparently chose death over degradation. They knew what would happen to them if they fell into the hands of the Romans. The Romans would have to make an example of them to discourage other such mutiny and rebellion, you see. And so rather than go through torture and servitude and humiliation, uh, they were all dead. Now Josephus, the historian, uh, records uh, for us uh, that uh, their death took place in a most unusual kind of a way, which I'll tell you about in just a second. But first, the question ought to arise in your mind, how did they survive up there? I mean, there were military barracks, there were storage rooms for food, there was a magnificent, huge cistern, ingeniously designed to collect rain water. There were all manner of things. How did it get there? Uh, Herod the Great put them there. We've spoken of him before, a genius architect, you know. And while he was in control, kind of a puppet of Rome, governing Judea, uh, Herod got a little paranoid. No, he got a lot paranoid. And so he built fortress palaces throughout the land in a line, not far, one from the other, so that if he came to be threatened, he could make his retreat to them and find refuge. And this was one of them, Masada. And he was most concerned about a lady named Cleopatra to the south in Egypt, because Cleopatra was a threat. And if she took control of this land, Herod the Great was certain she would have his head. So Masada was built by him. It was magnificent. He built two palaces up there. One on the northern side of Masada is in three levels. You could visit it today. And in it were hot and cold Roman baths. The walls were covered with Roman frescoes. There were swimming pools. There were food supplies. There was a synagogue. There were all manner of things built by Herod the Great. And so Josephus tells us Herod stored enough food and water and other supplies to sustain ten thousand people for at least ten years. So this was an unbelievable, he's a crazy guy, but a brilliant um, engineer and architect. So that's how all this stuff up there came to be. So when Flavius Silva got up there thinking this would be victory because the Roman conquerors liked to bring their prisoners, parade them down the streets of Rome, you know, to display their might. But he couldn't do that. He was robbed of the prideful opportunity. They were all dead. How did it happen? Well, it appears that the men, uh, sadly, decided to take the lives of their own family members. And so each man killed his wife and children. And then the remaining men who were left alive drew lots. Ten men were then selected to kill all the other men. And the last remaining man who drew that lot killed the nine and then took his own life. In fact, archaeologists have found up there uh, pieces of uh, pottery on which are inscribed, written, the names of men, one name on each piece of pottery, and it has been suggested by archaeologists that these might have been the very lots which were chosen by all the men in order to determine which of the men uh, would, which of the ten would be the last to survive. 
Well, uh, when uh, archaeologists found their way to um, Masada in relatively recent days and began their work, they found in the synagogue there, and you can enter it even today, there's no roof at all, but it's an enclosure that you could visit. Um, a, a few of us here have. You could sit in it. and You could look down and you could see the outline of the Roman siege camps still uh, after 2,000 years, noticeable down below. In the synagogue, the archaeologists found uh, different parts of the Bible. They found fragments of various books of the Bible, including Genesis, not Exodus, but Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Ezekiel and many of the Psalms, written by David, the psalmist, who I'd like to suggest to you in a little while might very well have written some of these from Masada. But I want to call your attention to one of those tonight. It's Psalm 18. And if you have your Bible, you should have not too uh, difficult a time finding Psalm 18. If you need one, you can find one in the uh, back of the seat in front of you. Just help yourself to it, please. Psalm 18. The Psalms are easy to find. They're just about in the middle of the Bible. It'll probably open to the Psalms uh, on its own. And you want to get to Psalm 18. This is a psalm or song of David. And I just want for us to look at one verse, just one little yet power-packed verse. It's verse 2. This is David speaking. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock. There it is again, two times my rock. They're two different words in the Hebrew, but essentially are synonyms. In whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Can you, looking to the verse, pick out the word that is repeated most often? Yeah, it's the word my. Can you count the number of times the word my is repeated in one verse? Four or five or eight or six or seven? Okay, good. Um, eight, you think? Let's have a vote. Uh, I think we could all agree, if not on the exact number, that the word my is repeated a lot in one verse. It's just a little two-letter word, isn't it? But with big, big meaning. Do you know what David is saying? This deity, this transcendent creator of the universe, I have a personal relationship with this one. He, this one, is not the great beyond to me. He is my, and then he piles up all these words of strength. He is my. It's a possessive thing. Look, David knew that God was almighty. What could I tell you if that's all we knew of God? That he was strong and powerful, the most powerful. I'm not sure we would make our way to him so readily. I'm not even sure he would invite us to. But the word my tells us he's more than just raw power. It tells us he also has a heart. 
It tells us he's personal and that he's relational. We're not talking about some force, some concept, some, some far-removed deity. We're talking about the God who came near, so near that a mere created being like David, or maybe even you, maybe even me, could lay claim to him by faith and say the same thing, utter the same declaration. You are my rock and my fortress. You're not a deliverer. Oh, no, it's better. You are my deliverer. You are the horn of my salvation. It's a huge, huge word. If God was just raw power, we couldn't make our way to him, don't you see? And he wouldn't even be comfortable with it. But I tell you, he's comfortable with relationship with us. I know this because he said, come to me. I'll give you rest. You know what else he said? He said, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. Don't you see? That's that's per he's personal. That is relationship. Do you know he, the creator, this immense, unbounded God, is so relational that hot on the heels of the rebellion of his own covenant people, not against Rome, but against him. Hot on the heels of it all, he stood one day on the Mount of Olives. And from it, he looked down into the old city of Jerusalem. And this God, who holds all things together, who has no beginning nor any end, this omnipotent deity wept. Don't you see? He's relational. And he uttered these words on that occasion. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are not willing. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. He predicted what Titus would some years later do. And he wept over it because he's relational. And he would rather that they would be willing to let him gather them under his protective wings than be subjected to Roman onslaught. Could I ask you as I speak and you're forced to endure these words, would you be thinking, do I know God that way? Every time they do a poll, Gallup or otherwise, an astounding number of uh, people in our country profess their belief in God. To be frank with you, that's not a very meritorious thing. It's only a fool who denies the existence of God. But it's a saved person only who can utter the words David did, my God. The very existence and presence of God is a fact accepted by many. Not good enough. Do you have a my God relationship with him? 
If not, would you be thinking of it? Do you want one? Would you be thinking of it as I, as I go on? We want you to be hungry for that relation, that my God relationship with we want you to know him personally and be in a relationship with him if you're not yet. And you need to, as I, I hope I can make clear. So, so, so David had this my God relationship and in fact he piles up in one measly old verse, he piles up a stack of metaphors, of my words, all of them indicating that though he be weak, God is his strength. And so he says, the Lord is my rock. A rock provides stability and safety. And he likened his God to this source of stability and safety. And he said, the Lord is my fortress. Let me give you a test. If I were to ask you to guess what you think the Hebrew word for fortress is, what might you say it is? The Hebrew word for fortress. Just yell it out. It's Masada. So let me retranslate. David said, here, the Lord is my Masada. Herod had his own man-made Masada and went there to seek refuge and protection. Have at it if you want your man-made Masada. But David said, I declare, the Lord is my Masada. It's very likely that David, who was pressed hard, often, by enemies like Saul and the Philistines, it's very likely that he made uh, at least on one occasion, his escape to this very place. It's very possible even that he wrote some of his psalms from Masada. He knew Masada was an unbelievably wonderful, natural place to escape, even in the midst of the desert. But he saw it only to be a symbol of a greater refuge. And he declared who that was here. The Lord, said he, is my Masada. The Lord is my Masada. And, and, and it wasn't just that, that, that this God was inanimate. Again, some energy, some force, some abstraction. He said, no, no, no. The Lord is my deliverer. Don't you say, personal. He lives. God is a person. He's not a force. He's not a concept. He has mind, emotions, and will and wants to join his with yours. He created you to be like him. That's why you have mind, emotions, and will. You've been created in his image. You're not junk. Created in the image of God. He's not inanimate. This Masada, not rock and mortar. No, 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 no. He's my deliverer. He said he is my God. David said, this God is my God. The divine being who holds all things together, David said, he is my God. The deity who is above all is my God. The one who is all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, he, that one, is my God. 
He is my God, meaning he's responsible for me. I need not protect myself. He's responsible. He holds my future. My very life is in his hand. He is my God. That's what David declared. You know what David said? It's as if David said, in song, I'm going to go public. I'm going to go on record, just as this beautiful gal went public in her baptism a few moments ago. David, in so many words, said the same thing. He said this. I'm paraphrasing. I have made up my mind. I've come to my final... This is my final answer. I've made my decision. I have exercised my free will, and I have freely chosen God to be my Masada in life. It's as if he said, in choosing him, I disavow and dismiss all other so-called Masadas. Instead, I have chosen to depend wholly upon him alone to protect me, and to provide for me, and to lead me through life. That's what he said in one verse, in one song. He said, he's my shield, that's a defender. And he's the horn of my salvation. Animals had horns in the ancient days. An animal's horn was a symbol of a power and strength. David was using these metaphors to describe God. He's not just my shield. He doesn't only defend me. He's the horn of my salvation. He goes on the offense with respect to me. David said, this is who God is to me. In fact, he's my stronghold. Your translation might say, high tower. You see, he's using things in his life experience. If he was up on Masada, he saw these citadels, these high towers, and he was likening this to God, and he was saying, God is my citadel, my high tower. It's as if he was saying, and now I have a new view of life. You see, from the height to which I have been elevated, because of my my God relationship, I can look down on the world from here. I can see those who assail me on all sides, but I know what their fate is. Because from this vantage point, I even see the future. Because the God who exists outside of time, my God, has revealed to me the future. I know, said he, the outcome of the world. I know of its corruption today. I know about all of it, and I know what's going to happen. And what's more, I know what my future is. I'm going to be with my God forevermore. I can see clearly now, said he, from my high tower, from my stronghold, who is none other than God Almighty. So I ask you a question. How in the world did this little Jewish kid, youth with ruddy complexion, that's how he's described, how did he get such faith, such confidence in God? Is he that far apart from you and I? Is he that much further down the road in his faith journey than you or I? Maybe not. Let me suggest something to you. There were circumstances surrounding his words in this psalm. And we know what the circumstances are because they're part of the psalm. Look to the top of Psalm 18. This is part of it. David wrote this for the choir director. It was a song. Here's what he said. 
It's a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song in the day, in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So I'm not sure that David was so far ahead of us than maybe we think. Look, here's what happened. He's in a heap of trouble. Saul's out to get him. Saul hates him. Saul's hunting after. Saul wants to kill him. David's trying to run away. David can't get away. God delivers him. And then David made this declaration. In other words, he's just like you or I. His natural inclination is not to be confident in God. It's to doubt God. That's what comes naturally. David didn't have great faith in an unseen God. His faith was not greater than yours or mine. I'll tell you what this God did. He proved himself to David to be trustworthy. And when he proved himself to be trustworthy, David simply declared it. David essentially said, I'm just like you guys. My trust has been violated by a lot of people in my life, by authority figures and significant others. And you're asking me to trust an unseen God? Come on! Could I tell you something? God sympathizes. He knows that. <clears throat> he doesn't ask us to believe in something out of the blue. And so he has given, as he's given David, he's given us life experiences. If we had time, each of us here, most of us here could stand up and share. I remember the time when I didn't know where to turn financially, maritally, medically. And here I am today. God has been my help. God, and you say the same thing in your own words, he's been my rock, he's my deliverer, he's the horn of my salvation, he's the one in whom I have taken refuge. I make my public declaration of confidence in him. Don't you see, faith has to be built up and our heavenly father will build it up through life experience. So let me tell you this, everybody here is between times. Everyone here is between the last time and the next time, reflecting back on God's faithfulness the last time will help you and me handle the next time. There will be the next time. That's the way it is. It's for our pruning and development. Life hurts. How do you navigate the turbulent waters of life and retain confidence in God? You look back. <laughs> You memorialize the times when you were desperate and needy and without hope. You didn't know which way to turn. And in manifold ways, which God has at his disposal, he proved himself to be as faithful to you as he was to David. So the last time will help you to handle the next time. David, as I mentioned, perhaps sought refuge at this very place, Masada, a fortress in the desert. But he saw that God was a much better fortress during his desert wanderings called life. Which leads me as we close to the life lesson from this place in the Holy Land that I'm choosing to derive. And I offer it to you if you like it as well. It's simple. The Lord is my Masada. The government is not my Masada. The church is not my Masada. 
Marriage is not my Masada. Getting in it or out of it is not my Masada. Stocks and bonds are not my Masada. Counselors are not my Masada. You understand, I don't, I'm not making negative statements all serve useful purposes. I'm just saying, aren't you tired of the uh, choices of Masadas you've made? Isn't that why maybe you, me, maybe we get disappointed? Is it not possible that we have erected in our own minds, our own places of refuge, only to find out? No. Only the Lord is my Masada. I need a place to run. I need a strong hold. I need a shield. I need him to be the horn of my salvation. The Lord is my Masada. I want to ask you a question. Uh, uh, maybe it's, this is a good opportunity for you to recommit <laughs> to that uh, truth, just as David did. You see, if the Lord is your Messiah, that means you're excluding all others. <laughs> if that's what's on your heart and mind, then would you repeat after me? I'll just, we'll do it as a crowd so you won't be embarrassed. I'll just say one, two, three, and then if you care to, you can say out loud, the Lord is my, emphasize my, the Lord is my Messiah. And that'll be your declaration of recommitment of your focus on the Lord. Otherwise, look at that. You're going to get too discouraged. It's a rough day in which we live. You're going to get too immersed in the details of life, which is just transitory. Governments are transitory. Leaders come and go. <clears throat> but the Lord is eternal. We're so bitter and cynical, we Christians. We don't look good. We're rendering the same response to the day that unsafe people can and are. It's bitterness, criticism, and complaining. We're defaming those in positions of authority. We think that's a Christian, legitimate point of view. It ain't. If you declare the Lord to be your Masada, that's where you run. When you see things that look like they're getting out of hand, and that's where you utter your complaint, and that's where you go for shelter. And he becomes your high tower, and then you see the vantage point. You see the outcome of all things. It's called victory in Jesus. So you rise above the news, <laughs> because you didn't make the news your Masada. You made the Lord your Masada. Okay, so if that's you, if that's what you want to do, then I'll say three, and you just, as loudly as you care to, you just say along with me, the Lord is my Masada. Are you ready? One, two, three. The Lord is my Masada. And if he's not yet, we would love to be here for you to help you to develop that my. If your, see, if my means yours. Possession, connection. And so as Buddy said earlier, we're here at the end of the service. It's comfortable, I think, for you. Most will take leave of us. We could talk. We could get together. All you have to say is, I'm interested in this concept <laughs> of me 
having a my relationship with God. I'm not sure I'm there yet. I'm interested in talking. That's all you have to do. We'd love to talk with you. Lord Jesus, here we're talking to you so easily. We can because you're personal and relational. It would be foolish and futile for us to talk to a wall, to bricks, even to a fortress on a high natural mountain. No, we prefer instead to talk to one who lives. You do. And when you take up your abode in our lives, oh my goodness, that's a treasure trove of blessing the likes of which we could not anticipate. To say, I believe in God, it, it, that doesn't flatter you, does it, God? To say, God is my God, I'm connected to him, he's the horn of my salvation, that's pleasing to you, isn't it? Because that's what you came to do, save us, O oh Savior. We've made a declaration, many of us, to make you and you alone our Masada. Would you help us, therefore, to run to Jesus first and foremost so as to have victory in this life, this side of things, on our way to the other side. And for the ones who haven't tasted the joy of knowing you personally yet, oh God, would you just please incline their hearts to spend a few moments with us before they leave the night so that we could develop a relationship and help to answer their questions and introduce them to you. This has to be done in your strength and power. And so that's why we pray to you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, though you be God, for coming in flesh and enabling a my Savior reality. We're blessed because of it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.